Now, for the morning, let me pull out my timer, otherwise we'll be here all day. We're, we're continuing in our series that we've called Silver Linings, the tagline of which is stressed by family, amen, um, but also blessed by God. There's, we, live in this, we live in this dynamic of um, being in family relationships that are stressful. I can't even read the word clock. <laughs> being in family relationships um, and being stressed by those things, but also wanting to walk with God, and God repeatedly telling us, like, hey, I'm blessing you, I'm blessing you, don't you see it? And sometimes, frankly, we don't see it. And so we've taken a look at a couple of different families who the, the way that the relationships work in the families actually have impact for not only the family, but the nation that they live in, and ultimately have ripple effects across world history. And today we're going to get to see this in a really, really interesting way. And I'll just be honest with you. Like, you guys know me well enough to know that I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, right? I like to read it. This is a text that I had in the plan. And when I started to prepare for this sermon, I thought, there is no way that I can get to all of this. This chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, this chapter is one that there are th- everything that happens beforehand, in some senses, leads up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then 1 Samuel chapter 8 will shape the rest of the story of Scripture for, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The world that Jesus enters into, the culture that he enters into, is shaped by what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's super important, and it's, I, I don't have time, like, you would be so bored if I, went, if I tried to articulate all of the details of, of all the different threads that this text touches on. So I'm just giving you a heads up, rabbit trails ahead, but I'm going to try and keep us on point, all right? So let's pause together as we begin um, and as we move towards this text. Would you pause together with me and pray uh, the disciples' prayer that God would help us to have the right focus, his kingdom, and that he would give for us not everything that we could possibly glean over a lifetime, but what we need for today that might shape our hearts so that we might forgive the people that we're interacting with. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we left off was 1 Samuel chapter 3. So we have skipped a couple of things, and we actually have skipped some very, very important things. Um, And so I'm going to try to summarize them for you and, and help you to see where we end up. Because 1 Samuel chapter 8 says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Well, the last time we saw Samuel, he was a kid serving in the temple under Eli. And remember, God came to him and said, hey, I've got a message for Eli that I need for you to, to transmit to him. So would you please let him know that everything I've already told him is going to come true. 
that because he has rejected me, because he has not taken seriously the spiritual responsibility that I've entrusted to him, I'm done dealing with his family. There, there's going to be, uh, there, everybody's going to die except for one person, and that person is just going to be left to cry about how everybody died, and it's going to be really, really sad. Got it, Eli? Okay. So that was Samuel's task. We talked about it last week, um, and that video is now on YouTube if, you'd like to, if you need to catch up. Um, Samuel's a young kid talking to an old guy about how God's going to judge the old guy's failures. Kind of a cliffhanger. But in the very next chapter, um, the, the Old Testament system had, uh, had some, very, some very distinct and set-apart um, markers for worship. And one of the things was what, what we call the Ark of the Covenant. So you've, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's this golden box with a bunch of like superpowers in it, right? It actually is the world's most expensive Bible cover. Um, God said, you guys are going to worship me, and the thing that's going to be most important, the thing that's going to be central to the worship of me is going to be this box that's inlaid with gold. But what's in the box? In the box is the testimony. It's, it's the, the, the articles that God, had, that God had given to people. God says, you're, when you come to worship me, the thing you're going to centralize and focus on are the things that I have already said to you. You are not going to go and, and, and start to worship me in whatever way seems right to you. You're going to start with the things that I have already clearly revealed about myself, and that's going to direct your worship. And then you're going to put it in this really golden, pretty box, and it's really awesome. So there was a mindset in cultures then that if, if nations were doing battle against each other, it wasn't just the nations, it wasn't just the governments that were competing, it was actually the gods of the different nations that were competing against each other. So they would go out to battle, and whoever won, it wouldn't just be that nation won this battle, it'd be that god won the battle over the other god. So if the nation of Israel worships Yahweh, and there's another nation that worships Baal or something else, um, Chemosh or Dagon or some of the other um, false gods that different nations worshipped, when, when Israel went to battle with those nations, the people didn't just see the flesh and blood swords and, and shields battle. They considered it also to be a, a, a spiritual battle that if this army won, their god had had victory over this army over here. All right? So, again... This is a chapter where everything's kind of freeloaded and then backloaded. So I'm going to try and give you a bunch in a little bit. God's like, y'all aren't going to be like the other nations. Um, because the other nations would take their God, because there's a false God, it was an idol. They'd take their God into battle with them as a symbol of the, our God is with us. Israel didn't ever do that. They got their marching orders from God in the temple, and then they would go out and do what God said, ideally. They didn't always, but that was what was supposed to happen. They were coming up against the Philistines, and uh, they were like, man, those Philistines, those guys are really, really smart. They've got stronger weapons than we have. We'd never be able to overcome them. Let's take our God with us, but our God, we don't have an idol for our God. Like he said specifically, don't make graven images. That's a wrong thing. Uh, what's the closest thing we've got? We've got this golden Bible cover. We'll take that out with us. So they take the Ark of the Covenant with them out into battle. Like this thing is going to be the symbol of God's presence with us, and it's going to protect us. Um, because God won't let his name, like after all he's done in Egypt, God won't let his name be rugged through the mud by allowing his ark of his Bible cover be captured, right? Well, guess who carried it? 
Eli's boys. <clears throat> and we already know that God wasn't super impressed with Eli's boys. They apparently were. So um, God didn't really care that they were carrying it. And they died. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> and this foreign army seemingly has subdued Yahweh. And so they take the golden Bible cover and they put it in the temple to their God to show our God has had victory over that other God. And it's really, really interesting. The Philistines are like, yay, we have a party. We defeated the, the God of Israel. And then their idol keeps falling over in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Like They come in every night after they've fed him and tucked him in. They come in the next morning and he's bowing down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's really, really silly. Then everybody in the town gets sick. And they're like, this is, not, this is not okay. We need to do something about this. So they, they say, okay, this thing obviously is cursed, so let's send it back to Israel because that'll, that'll definitely take care of it. They send it back to Israel. Well, when it gets back into the land of Israel, the guy who happens to hold on to it, he's blessed. Like everything in his life goes great. He's prosperous. Everything's going good. And the Philistines are like, well, that's not what happened with us. Like this was not good. So anyway, the, the ark was captured and Eli's sons were killed. <clears throat> the next time we see Eli, he's sitting on his butt, which is pretty characteristic for him, at the gate of the, uh, at the, gate of the city. They come and they say, hey, Ark, or he said, your boys are dead. And like, oh, bummer, and those guys. And then they say, and the Ark's been captured. And he falls over backwards, and he breaks his neck. And this is where I've kind of hinted at, like, Eli was probably getting fat off of the abuses that his sons were doing. And maybe you feel like I've been adding too many details to the text. But, but this is where it says, Eli was really fat, and so when he fell over, he broke his neck. Like, he was so fat that when he fell off his stool, he died. It, it was a problem. <laughs> so, seemingly, God has poured out his judgment on the house of Eli, and, and, and his boys are dead, and he's dead, and now Samuel, because Samuel had given that message to Eli, everybody goes, oh my gosh, when God speaks, Samuel can hear him. And he's not afraid to tell people what it is that God's saying. So they make Samuel a judge over the whole nation. Everybody comes to Samuel when they have a problem. They ask him to give guidance. They ask him to give direction. And he does. So, and he has a lifetime of that. And then we come to chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And none of you guys are outraged by that. Is anybody outraged? No, Samuel was a good dude. He had pretty good discernment. But here's the thing. All throughout the book of Judges, which is one of the most corrupt times in history, where people are constantly just doing what's right in their own eyes, even like wicked people who end up trying to make worship themselves instead of worship of God, they never did hereditary judges. God would just raise up a judge wherever he saw fit to do it, and the people were expected to interact with that. Never did a judge turn around and say, okay, I was a judge, I did a good job, now my boys are going to be good, are going to be good judges too. It, it's a small thing, and it, but I feel like that's the only thing I have to grasp onto given the basis of everything else that's getting ready to happen and the way that God interacted with Eli and now is interacting with Samuel. Two situations that kind of seem the same, but God does very different things, okay? Is that... That's a lot of history. I gave you a lot of words in 10 minutes. I'm really, I'm sorry, but I feel like you need to know some of that background in order to feel the import of what's getting ready to happen, okay? So would you read with me now the rest of the verses in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page 290 in the Blue Bibles if you've got one of those in the room or you can navigate there in your app. 
1 Samuel chapter 8, I'm going to begin in verse 1 again. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out, of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they, also, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, Samuel grows up, he's getting old, and he appoints his sons to be judges after him. Well, that's fine, but the sons have chosen a different path. Samuel learned early on to walk in the ways of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him, and he decided, I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to say what he tells me to say. And his boys, apparently, grew up understanding, like, okay, Dad's super serious about this thing, but we're going to do it a different way. We'd much rather have money than have integrity, right? So they took bribes, and they perverted justice, all right? So... Here's the thing. I've railed against Eli for the last couple of weeks because Eli was in a position to take his sons out of leadership and he chose not to. He, he corrected them and, and he chose not to do it. And here we see Samuel who grows up and he puts his sons into leadership and then they also are perverting justice. And there's nothing in here where God says, Samuel, you've done a bad job. Samuel, I'm going to judge your house. Samuel, because you have rejected me and you have despised my offerings, I'm going to remove you and your family. Like, that doesn't happen. And something in me goes, that's, that's, there's something not fair there. Eli got judged pretty hard for having rough kids. And here Samuel apparently was more engaged and raises kids that choose different ways, and he doesn't get a rebuke. It doesn't seem fair. Why is that? <sighs> I don't really know. <laughs> like, it, it, I, I, I don't know. The, I, I thought about it a ton, and I, I, praying through the text, I'm like, I don't, I don't get it, God. Why did you hold Eli so responsible for his son's behavior, and then Samuel apparently gets off? So it makes me wonder, like, what's not written in the text? It makes me wonder, it, it, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. So I, hopefully that's an encouragement to you, because sometimes even the preacher goes to the Bible and leaves with more questions than he had going into it, all right? <clears throat> I don't know why he does this. But there's a principle here I think you need to understand, especially because everybody in the room, uh, or most of us in the room, are parents. We see Eli, and we see God's rebuke of Eli because his kids are bad, and we see that God holds Eli responsible for his son's sin and judges him for it. And it seems like Eli knew what he was supposed to do and chose not to do it because he wanted to keep his son's whatever. With Samuel, his kids grow up and take a different path, 
and God holds Samuel's sons responsible for his sin. So parents, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to, how to parse this out and give you a, like a clear principle of like whether or not your kid's bad behavior is bad on you or bad on them. I, I, I wish, like I feel like, that's what I came to the text looking for. Like how can I tell the difference? And I, I can't tell the difference from what we have in the text. But there's a sense in which Samuel takes responsibility for the things he's supposed to take responsibility for, and it seems like Eli never did. It seems like, and this is reading in between the lines, because it's not in the text, but it seems like Samuel was a different kind of parent and took different kinds of actions with his sons, such that when it came time for judgment, God poured the judgment on Samuel's sons and not on Samuel himself. Where with Eli, it was the other way around, right? So, do we take responsibility for what's ours? Is, is really the question. Do we take responsibility for what's ours? And that is taking responsibility for the things that we are responsible for. But that also is saying, I will not take responsibility for the things that I'm not responsible for. There comes a time when, as our kids are growing up, where they are making their own decisions. They are choosing a different way. And some, at some point, we can't take responsibility for that. We will do our part. We will do the part that God has entrusted for us to be faithful parents. But at some point, you have to let the kids be the kids. You have to let them make their own decisions. And it seems like God has the discernment to be able to tell whether or not we've been faithful for the things that he's entrusted to us or not. And so this is, where, this is a point in the sermon where I wish I could give you a box like, here's a good thing that you can do. Here's a guiding principle. And I don't have one except to say, you've got, we've got to seek Jesus as we're raising these kids. We've got to ask him for the discernment to know what is my responsibility and what are the things that I am supposed to be taking care of and the things I am supposed to be correcting and what are the things that I'm supposed to allow them to do and let them make the decisions and let them take responsibility for it. Because there's a line somewhere in there and I don't know where it is. And unless the Spirit of God is walking with you, I don't think we will be able to find it. You see? You see what I'm saying? And teenagers... That means there comes a time where you make, you make decisions and you're responsible for the decisions that you made. You can't blame your parents forever. <laughs> Oops, sorry. God points us towards what's best even through our disagreement. So this, this is like the main point that I think we're going we're gonna to see here. God points us towards what's best even through our disagreement. So the, the people, the people respond to this leadership situation. The people say, Sam, you're a great guy. We trust you. We're looking at your boys. They're not doing the same thing. They've gone a different way. They've chosen a different path. And we've already had that with Eli. Like we're kind of over with this kind of thing. So what we want, we've come up with a solution for this. We want a king. Would you give us a king like all the other nations? And Samuel's hurt. He's, he feels betrayed. Like, don't you trust my leadership? Don't you trust that I've taken care of you for all these? I've given you a lifetime of service. And now you guys are turning your back on me. And, and, and so he, he does what we have seen modeled in this book so far by Hannah. He has this grief that, he, that has been incurred by the faith community. And he takes it to God. He says, God, what am I supposed to do with this? They don't, they don't trust me. They're, they're, they're rejecting me. And God says, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. 
Like, I've been walking with these people for a long time. I've been working with them for a long time. I've been trying to get them somewhere for a long time. And all along, from the very beginning, they always chose to chase after other gods instead of just following me. They're not rejecting you as the judge. They're rejecting me as the king of the nation. And so the scholarly people will say this is like a theocracy where God is actually the president of the country, where God is actually the king of the nation, and then he appoints judges who are the earthly representatives of, of him, and they do different things. And so it seems like the people want to change from a theocracy where God is the one ruling the government to a, to a monarchy where there's a guy who's ruling the government. We want that because that's the model that we see in the other nations. That's what we want. And God says, give them what they want. Give them what they're asking for. It's not about you, it's about me. And so the people are disagreeing with God about what's best. And he's still going to point them towards what's best. So, um, let's read together in chapter, or in verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. So, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, look, I, I took this to God. This is what God said to me. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will apport, appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that, that, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out for us, go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And you can see chapter 9, the, ch the heading of that is Saul is chosen to be king. So Samuel goes and does it, goes and finds a king. This is so interesting. Like, there are so many threats. Um, the people are rejecting God as the sovereign king of their government system that he set up. So when, when the people came out of Egypt... God gave them a constitution. We call it the Ten Commandments, um, but the Ten Commandments is actually the preamble to the constitution of the nation of Israel. When he starts to give the laws, like he, he's giving them a system of government, and the system of government starts with, what's the first commandment? Somebody's going to get a gold star today. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. All right? So the system of government is based upon that first fact where we hold this truth to be self-evident. God brought me out of Egypt and now I'm not going to worship anybody else but him. That's what their whole system of government is on, is based upon. And God says, all right, like you guys, you guys are not getting this. 
you want a king, you want a king to be like you, like, and God knew that this was coming, actually, like, if you look back in Exodus, when, when God's talking to Moses, hundreds of years before this happened, God says to Moses, he says, hey, look, you're, they're going to get into the land, and they're going to want a king, and these are the rules for the king when the king shows up. Like, God says, these are some things that the king needs to keep in mind when he becomes the king. So it's not completely outside of God's plan for there to be a king in the nation of Israel, but they missed it. Samuel gives them a solemn warning, and, and starting in, in verse 10 and all the way down through verse 8. He gives them a solemn warning. He says, look, you want a king, this is what a king's like. And some of the stuff ain't bad, it's just the w- nature of the way that government works. If you put people in power, they have the right to tax you. You guys don't pay taxes to a king right now. Your system of government is actually built around the temple. And the people that you give taxes to, they would call them tithes. This, it gets real complicated. <clears throat> The system of government was built around the temple, but now you're going to take the temple and you're going to essentially make different houses and all that kind of stuff. Like, and now you're going to have to pay taxes. And the tenth that you were given to God, you're going to continue to give to God because that's what my expectation is. Because I'm the king over everything anyway. But now you're going to give a king a tenth to the king. And so now, because you've created the system of government, there's going to be costs to it. And look, the king is going to take your kids and he's going to put them to work for him. He's going to take your kings and he's going to put them in the military. He's going to take your daughters and he's going to make sure that they cook and clean and do perfume. Like, this is going to be a royal guy. He's going to, have, he's going to need things and stuff and pomp and circumstance. And you want a royal class? You want to fund that kind of thing? Okay, this is what it costs you. But understand that the king, when he becomes king, is going to serve who? Himself. He's going to take your kids to fight his battles. Samuel just finished saying, the king is going to take your kids to fight his battles. And they've said, give us a king so that he can fight our battles. Didn't you just hear what I just said? said He's going to take from you to fight his battles. He's not going to fight your battles. He's going to use you to do what he's going to do. Is that what you want? And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. We want to be like them. It's heartbreaking. But man, has anybody ever done this before? Have you ever been so focused on what you want that you overlook what you're getting? Have you ever been so attached to your idea of the solution to the problem that you have not thought through the other implications of your solution? Are we so focused on what we want that we don't see what we're getting? Sin is so deceitful. The people are looking at a, at a problem, at a situation. There's a leadership issue, and they've come up with a solution, and they have bought in so hard on their solution that they are overlooking the details of what it's going to cost them in the long term, too. Am I the only one who's done that? <laughs> Who's, who's been like, I know, what, I know what's going to fix this problem. I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And I get so focused on getting at that, and I get that, and I'm like, this actually makes more work for me. I don't think, this, this is not the thing that I want. This is not doing the thing that I wanted for it to do. This is not, this is not fighting my battles for me. This is, this is me fighting battles for it. And that's, I, I like to own things, not have things own me. Are we so focused on what we want that we don't see what we're getting? And, 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 God's, and, and Samuel brings the people back to God and says, hey, God, 
they're, they're sold on this idea. And God says, obey their voice. Give them what they want. And he does. And I, I could spend a lot of time, like I, I have, a, <laughs> there's a lot of nuance in, in a discussion about systems of government as they relate to the Old Testament and how they relate to modern day applications. But I'd just like for you to see that the democracy that's happening here is not in the people's best interest. The people have come up with a solution for themselves and God is allowing them to have it because the majority rules, but it's not the thing that he wanted for them. So I, I'm, I'm an American, I'm proud to be an American, I support America in general, but like understand that democracy as a system does not guarantee that we get the best thing for us. And God points us towards what's best even when we disagree with him about it. So I'm just putting that out there. I'm not anti-America. I just want, especially in an election season, I just want you to think, chew about, think about that for a little bit. <clears throat> Here's kind of the bottom line question, though. Like, do we trust God as our Father? Do you, do you see the fatherhood of God in this passage? He's, he has gone and bought these people. He has brought them out of Egypt. He has acquired them for his own. And in a sense, he has adopted these people as his own. He's taken them into his house and he's cared for them. He's provided for them. He's given them all the blessings that they could possibly want. And they continue to go, no, like, I don't really, like, thanks for the stuff, but I don't really want you. Like, I want, I want this other thing. And the heart of God is like, no, but you should, you should worship me. Like, not because I need the ego trip, but because it's what's best for you. I want what's best for you. Would you trust me for what's best for you? And they're like, yeah, well, I kind of disagree with what's best for you. I want that. I want to be like them. I want to be like that family over there. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And the heart of God says, that's not, it's not going to work out. But okay. I have to let you make your own choices. You want a king? It's not going to be what's best, but okay. And the heart of God lets them do it. He turns them over. He gives them the thing they're asking for. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to articulate this, and I don't think, it's, I don't, I don't think I landed yet. There's times where we're looking for the silver lining to things, and we're mining for the silver lining. We're, we're taking the thing that we think is bad and trying to turn it into something's good. We take this, here in the text, they take this leadership position, and they think, I know how to fix this. We'll change the leadership position. But they had the silver lining, and they were looking for something that wasn't going to fix it. They were, they were overlooking the blessing that God had given them and looking for something more. And man, if, if, if that doesn't bring up a lot of family dynamic situations in my head. But God points us what's towards best, even through our disagreement. And here's the crux for the whole thing, and this is, where, this is what blew my mind about this chapter. This is why we're running at 30 minutes and I'm, I'm still struggling to close. The people wanted a king for bad reasons. God told them it's not what's best, but he's going to make it happen. God follows through and gives them what they ask for. But in establishing the monarchy, he paves the way for Jesus. Like there's, there's some convoluted questions about free will and predestination in this chapter that people are asking for what's not the best for them and still God uses it to bring Jesus into the world, to use him as the king of the nation and the king of the world that, that all nations will bow at his feet. It turns 
the turn for that happens in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Is it like, I hope that that's just enough information, that's just enough questions for you to want to dig in more, because there's a lot more in this text that we're not going to talk about. But the thing that I want you to see this morning is that God points us towards what's best even through our disagreement. Not despite our disagreement, but through our disagreement. You see what I'm saying here? That God takes the thing that they disagreed with God about and walks them through it. God says, this isn't what's best, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And through this thing that wasn't what's best for you, I'm going to set up a, a way for the world to be redeemed to me. The way for the world to be reconciled to me. These people that I have brought to myself and who are rejecting me, I'm going to use their rejection to open up the floodgates so that all the world can come to me through my son Jesus, the king of all. Jesus points us to what's best through our disagreement. And it just means that as we walk with him, man, we've got to be clinging on to him. Because we never know what it is that he's going to use. Would you pray with me? (sighs) Almighty God, there's times where we look at your word and we are reminded of our limitations. (laughs) We We are stuck in one period of time. We are limited by the amount of information that you've given us in your word. We have so many questions still. And yet we can glimpse your heart of compassion for us. Your desire to reconcile us to yourself. To take our rebellion against you and to use it for your purposes in ways that we could not ever have anticipated. Things that we were not working for. Blessings we were not asking for you have richly poured out on us in your son. So God, give us grateful hearts. Would you help us to walk with you this week? Would you empower us through your spirit to do the work that you've called us to do, to take responsibility for the things that we are responsible for, and God, to have the wisdom to know when to let things we're not responsible for be responsible by somebody else. We need you, Lord. So it's in your name that we ask. Amen.